0: You're listening to an episode of the C-19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and future through the United States in the long 19th century. We are an official production of C-19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Disclaimer. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the opinions of the respective individual's employers nor the official opinions of C-19. Hi, this is the C-19
1: Podcast. My name is Britt Russert and I'm here with Kyla Schuler, Assistant Professor of Women's and Gender Studies at Rutgers University, New Brunswick, and the author of The Biopolitics of Feeling, Race, Sex, and Science in the 19th Century, which was published um, just recently this year by Duke University Press. So we're going to be spending the next half hour or so um, talking about Kyla's fabulous new book um, and its crucial interventions within but also beyond the study of 19th century, um, the 19th century United States. So thanks Kyla
0: so much for Thank chatting. You, Britt. I'm excited to be here.
1: Um, I was wondering if we could just start um, with you talking a little bit about um, the genesis of this project and then maybe something about your research process.
0: So this, this project, which is about thinking of sentimentalism as biopolitics, as a vast regulatory technology about disciplining and guiding and regulating the population. Um, and this sentimental biopower, I argue, works not only at the level of cultivating individual discipline, but also at the populational level. Of actually regulating the evolution of the species being, and I think it's that second part of the heart, second part of the argument that was a lot harder to arrive at, um, and that is probably a little more surprising for readers to encounter. Um, so the origins of the project um, kind of make that make sense, uh, which is that it started because I was really interested in W. E. B. Du-, du Bois, and I was reading some of the arguments made by people like Dylan English, and others of. Uh, that work in the early 2000s of that really important bringing to our attention how much of his uh, endorsement of everything from adoption to the raising of children, especially in his work as the editor of The Crisis, uh, was actually eugenic in nature. And it's a kind of eugenics that doesn't look like dominant Anglo-American eugenics. It's not about um, coerced sterilization, right, mm-hmm. or other forms of prohibiting the wrong kind of people, quote-unquote, to re- reproduce. Uh, and so it didn't, we didn't know how to understand it as eugenics for a while. Uh, and his argument, his turn to eugenics was sort of built on this longer idea about uh, the way that you could actually take a hold of the evolutionary process um, as activists and direct it toward the ends you wanted to direct, to direct it. Um, and as someone who had an interest in history of science and science studies, I found this really intriguing. And I wanted to know, you know how did he come to this? Like what is the prehistory mm-hmm. by which Du Bois turned the sciences as a method of resistance, mm-hmm. uh, which is one reason why I was so excited to read your book, for example, because you're precisely doing that work of showing that there was you know a century of black uses of science mm-hmm. for anti racist purposes before mm-hmm. that. Um, so, I, I started wanting to, to do that also, um, and then the argument became, became um, it went in a different direction of mm-hmm. looking at biopolitical process more generally. Mm-hmm. But I basically um, saw that there had been this really long tradition in the U.S. of Lamarckian reads of evolution. And this is well established mm-hmm. in the history of science literature, mm-hmm. that, Dar- that Darwin did not rule the day mm-hmm. yet, that Darwinian evolution came to be fully accepted in the 1930s and 40s. But before that, the dominant reading of Darwin in the 19th century US was actually very Lamarckian. It was this idea that evolution was progress, (laughs) that it was teleological, um, and that the more evolved the species, the more, or the race, the more direct control you had Mm -hmm. in shaping that evolution. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not hard to imagine how that kind of setup would be really appealing to activists. Mm -hmm. The kind of um, say social and economic opportunities you provide in the present Mm -hmm. will actually change the physical structures of your reform targets, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then those changed structures will be inherited by the next Mm -hmm. by their descendants. You know that's Mm -hmm. the Lamarckian framework, the idea that you can inherit an acquired characteristic. Mm -hmm. And once I really started looking at the U.S. as a Lamarckian era and not as a Darwinian. Mm natural selection enshrining competition, it just kind of broke open the 19th century to me Mm -hmm. and enabled me to see um, reform projects and sentiment and everything from feminism even Mm -hmm. to a kind of really early gay rights Mm -hmm. as actually being part of this scientific evolutionary narrative Mm -hmm. of trying to breed toward civilization.
1: One of my favorite things about the book is the is the way that you periodize Lamarckianism and show the long reach of Lamarckianism. That was just fascinating and so fabulous for me because it's true. I think like our thinking about the 19th century in terms of the age of Darwin, I think scholars have done a good job of showing how that's obviously an inappropriate way to think about the early 19th century mm-hmm. United States, right? right. <laughs> we know about the delayed reception of Darwin's work in the U.S., mm-hmm. um, but I think your work also shows the ways in which um, theories of impressibility, as you talk about them, and and um, Lamarckian theories were continuing to be so powerful in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, later in the century, for me, was super, was super helpful.
0: Yeah, and I think they're powerful in the U.S. and also elsewhere in the Americas mm-hmm. in the way they weren't for Europe, mm-hmm. and there is a real European orientation mm-hmm. to the history of science, mm-hmm. um, and I think Um, as 19th century lit scholars we don't read super widely in history of science specifically Mm -hmm. we read a lot more widely in other scientific Mm -hmm. fields that it just meant that there was actually a lot of almost kind of recovery work to do Mm -hmm. of rethinking who counts as part of evolutionary theory Mm -hmm. and who counts as evolutionary activists because it's no longer just um You know, Robert Barons of the Gilded Age. Mm-hmm. it actually looks more like sentimental paragons, mm-hmm. <laughs> like Harriet Beecher Stowe becomes a key figure of, of evolutionism Absolutely. Um, and that that I found by my process was really going back and looking at where are these Lamarckian sciences. Mm-hmm. It took me a long time to then turn that into an interesting argument, you know, in my dissertation days, it was just sort of like where 's Lamarck <laughs> like where am I finding him?" Uh, but then it turned out that all these stories came into the fold that I hadn't anticipated uh, and wouldn't have necess- wouldn't have thought of as part of sentimentalism uh, without that evolutionary connection. I'm thinking especially of the chapter on the orphan trains, which is another phenomenon that is weirdly underexplored in american studies or or literary studies. It is talked about in social history. you know, but this project to, which is the subject of chapter four this project to um, send out, to tra- transplant 200,000 kids from tenements in East Coast cities, especially, New York, especially in New York, and send them to farm families in the West. Um, and looking at the founder of this project, Charles Loring Brace, he published so widely in evolutionary theory. He wrote a whole book on ethnology, as I talk about, and looking at how well argued the the evolutionary biological basis of his project was Mm -hmm. um, helped me see that these kind of Lamarckian evolutionary activist narratives weren't just behind things like, say, the orphan trope as the central protagonist of sentimental literature. Mm -hmm. Um, This idea of like the child who can remake her own heritage and her own descendants, but actually informing the origins of modern foster care. Mm
1: It reminds me of Laura Wexler's arguments about um, the influence of sentimentality in terms of um, black industrial education, Mm -hmm. that it actually becomes a program and a policy, right? Um, Absolutely. The ways in which you you show us how sentimental biopower has not only these um, cultural and literary effects but spreads out through policy and reform and these kinds of things is really, really amazing. Um, So could you talk maybe a little bit, do you want to tell us about maybe a a research discovery moment that you had, a kind of aha moment in your own research, um, and maybe also if there's like a favorite part of your book?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, those two are directly related questions. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So um, that would be about chapter three, uh, which is called Vaginal Impressions, Gyno-Neurology, and the Racial Origins of Sexual Difference. And I knew that I wanted to have a chapter about women physicians, you know, because the premise of the project is looking at sentimental biopower. And specifically, my method was to look at how sentimentalism as a discourse was fully intertwined um, with the sciences. And so sentimentalism as this project of believing that, you know, emotional and moral feeling um, guides to, guides you to the best uh, political action. Um, that this, before the 20th century, before the rise of bioscience, this idea that moral feeling, or what Harriet Beecher Stowe famously called right feeling, mm-hmm. could guide you to the truth, wasn't only applicable in cultural situations or political ones, but also scientific ones. And so there's a book by historian of science named Jessica Riskin called Science in the Age of Sensibility about sentimentality as a method in the early 19th century French physical sciences. And she talks about how how, um, physical scientists identified sentiment as an emotional response to a physical impression. And that really kind of unlocked thinking of sentiment for me as a kind of regulatory process of how our sensory body interacts with the world and how the body of reason is a body that matures and a brain that develops through sensory impressions and that's actually a highly vulnerable plastic susceptible body Um, and so sentiment is that process of later reflecting guiding regulating on what kind of physical sensations you seek that then shapes the effect of the body so i want i knew that um I wanted to look at women doctors because that's one of the most obvious examples of that kind of sympathy and science frame, as one, as Regina Moritz Sanchez's famous book put it. Um, and I wrote a first version of the chapter that was mostly about how, um, as other scholars have shown, the majority of female physicians between 1850 and 1920, the first 70 years that women got licenses, um, did not marry. Um, 70% never married, and a good portion, maybe majority of those, had long-term relationships with other women. And so I was really curious about how Lamarckism, um, because the idea is that you acquire characteristics throughout your life and then transmit them, it means that there wasn't yet an idea that hereditary transmission only happened through heterosexual parentage. Hereditary transmission can happen through like queer relationships, it can happen through foster parents and foster kids is in the orphan train rationale. Um, It can happen through um, off-reservation boarding schools, like all these different projects about how to actually change the hereditary makeup of kids were built on this idea that hereditary transmission happens in environments, in milieus, not just in parentage. And so it was an argument about the kind of pre-sexology homonationalism of these doctors, Mm -hmm. that because they were so, insistent that their medical work was improving white womanhood, that that actually opened up space for their own professional and sexual non-normativeness, right, and so the first, I shouldn't say first version, say say draft like six of this chapter, I brought to my writing group, um, which is in uh, Karen Weingarten, Sarah Blackwood, and Lauren Klein, and we've been working together for, this is now our seventh year of sharing our writing together, and there was one little page that had a couple quotes about how some of the doc, uh, one of the doctors, had written about um, the vitalist powers of the vagina, and they said, "Hold up, this is amazing. <laughs> Why is this buried in the middle of this chapter? Mm-hmm. And what if you went back and tried to find more? And what if you could make more of this chapter about their about this specific um, Lamarckian vitalist powers of the vagina in their work? And so I had I had read biographies of all the key women positions in the late 19th century, you know, trying to find the right subjects and saw that, that you that know, Mary Walker had written this really, one of the doctors, Dr. Mary Walker had written this very uh, interesting sex advice manual that she addressed to men, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which is kind of amazing because there are so many mm-hmm. sex advice manuals by men doctors to women, that mm-hmm. she explicitly wrote one as the reverse. And there are only a handful of copies around, but one of them was at the New York Public Library. Um, and so I went and, you know, just took cell phone pictures of that. There was too, they wouldn't let me scan it because it was too old, but I just took cell phone pictures of the pages. Um, and then it turned out to be this really kind of mind blowing text about in large part about the vitalist capacities of the vagina. And then I went back and reread Elizabeth Blackwell's work of which that there's a lot more. There's, she wrote, she published at least a dozen books and many articles, um, and then was able to rewrite the whole chapter. Um, because I then had found that these two women doctors, Elizabeth Blackwell and Mary Walker, had actually argued that the vagina is the um, the most developed and most, the vagina of the white woman is the most developed and most advanced neurological structure of all of humankind. Um, and that they had, this idea that I'm talking about, about impressibility, which which is, I I define as the capacity to be affected over time. This is what gets developed in sentimental biopower. This is, this is what gets sort of elevated as the material crux of, of the body and therefore of race and sex difference. Like race is elaborated as a hierarchy of relative impressibility. Blackness being the most unimpressible and civilized whiteness being seen as the most impressible, the most able to be affected over time and therefore to progress or to degenerate. Um, and so, This chapter is about how they really conceptualized the vagina of the white woman as this most impressible organ in a way that simultaneously um, used this dominant framework of race and sex difference to defend not just white women's capacities, but to defend white women's ability to control their own sexuality, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, which is a really surprising argument to encounter in the 1860s. You know, Mary Walker says things like, fathers should teach their daughters how to crush Men, men's testicles <laughs> to prevent rape. <laughs> she says, you know, fifty percent of all children are born of rape. You know, a hundred years before mm-hmm. marital rape law existed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she says things I never knew that anybody, any woman published. Well, some of it sounds century. like science fiction, right? And so science is, right, science fiction, <laughs> so, right? Because she says, you know, if you, if your daughter is born of rape, that daughter will be born with her, her vagina will be impressed mm-hmm. with the, with the with the idea of intense resistance, that even when she wants to have sex, she won't be able to not crush the penis of her lover <laughs> because her <laughs> vagina will have inherited, she says, such a strength of, um, of resistance, mm-hmm. she says. Um, so that, uh, that, whole, that whole process was really delightful for me to discover these kind of queer, like sex positive in many ways mm-hmm. um, readings of early feminism rooted in the vagina, mm-hmm. and yet they're so fully rooted in the capacities of white women only. Mm-hmm. Um, so it also feels very relevant for the kind for the struggles we're still having in feminism today.
1: Absolutely, um, I think you're just. I'll just introduce it as a kind of key term. Your theorization of it evolutionary feminism as a way to understand the links between eugenics and a kind of white woman's feminism in the late 19th century into the early 20th century is super helpful but I was also trying to think about you don't have to answer this now how evolutionary feminism maybe still persists today right um, so I think that's also maybe relevant
0: for yeah this yeah absolutely and I think with this chapter in particular um, it's less about the evolution and more about how fully these two doctors articulated feminist subjectivity mm-hmm. um, as connected to possessing a vagina. Yes, absolutely. Right, and so being in a moment still where trans exclusionary mm-hmm. radical feminisms are st- like still get a lot of attention in play, mm-hmm. or even all the way to the pussy hat of the women's march, we are still definitely in the logic where feminism is so intertwined with a kind of vaginal subjectivity Mm -hmm. that I think that their work has actually had tremendous influence over the decades in a way that I would like to see us um, have less biological Mm -hmm. notions of feminist subjectivity.
1: I really loved how you, you know, talk about these um, relationships between female doctors, but also then show that you don't, you aren't sort of utopian or say that anything about those relationships or this, the fact of their practices is sort of necessarily transgressive. In fact, the f- since reproduction was not yet coupled to. Hetero heterosexual sex that heredity happened through these different modes of impressibility that they actually could participate in those networks in terms of pr- reproducing whiteness itself, mm-hmm. and so that that's an intense form of nineteenth century nationalism, mm-hmm. right? Right. Um, and I just think that's a it's a really great intervention. Thank you. Um, so, could you maybe talk? I guess we're we're already talking a little bit about some of the um, more um, contemporary stakes of the project. Do you maybe want to say something about um, which of your book's interventions you think might be most relevant for C-19 scholars, so scholars working in the 19th century?
0: Mm-hmm. I think that the argument, like the argument about sentimental biopower goes in multiple directions. Uh, one of one of the effects of that argument that I think is the most relevant is that it, it helps us Develop a new schematic, really, for thinking about what racial difference was understood to be in the nineteenth century. Mm-hmm. One of the big arguments in the book is that we've been overly attached to the idea that the nineteenth that the nineteenth century was a period of, you know, rampant biological determinism, mm-hmm. that race was considered to be, um, you know, to meet out capacities in wildly unequal fashion that mm-hmm. fix people in different positions like throughout uh, throughout their lives Um, recently scholars have been emphasizing actually that there were that they that there were ideas of a kind of malleable body in the 19th century and it's that work, like people like Tavia Nyong'o for example it's that work that i'm really building on Mm -hmm. Um, i think that what's so useful about a biopolitical reading of race is that it asks us to understand race like Foucault does not as a process of identifying and sort of limiting individual bodies, mm-hmm. but as a way of managing entire populations. Mm-hmm. And so race is set up not as um, an individual interior interior state um, that affects that body's mm-hmm. like, capacity to, to grow, mm-hmm. um, but rather as a way of demarking mm-hmm. among the uh, vast number of people who live in an area mm-hmm. I'll say among a species, demarking um, some bodies as belonging to, or having good biological capacity, material mm-hmm. quality, and other bodies as being of inferior biological material that will threaten the health of the survival as a whole. And mm-hmm. so understanding race as a relational framework instead of one about individual bodies and identities, I think really opens up um, a framework to understand how racial hierarchies are being played out in a way that differently regulated a body's capacity to evolve. So whiteness gets understood as being super impressible, Mm -hmm. able to be um, improved upon or degenerated every generation. And other races get cast as unimpressible and therefore incapable of moving forward through time and incapable of any kind of progress. So in some ways there is a kind of determinist framework for race. It's just only applied to bodies of color. And white bodies are seen as literally capable of not just transformation, but perfection. You see all these arguments, you know, leading up toward the millennium, the kind of millennialism of 19th century readers, where they're like, whites are going to evolve into a kind of heaven on earth. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. like that was, you know, literally what many, many of the figures I'm writing about from Charles Loring Brace to Elizabeth Blackwell are looking forward to this idea of civil, of heaven on earth through the evolution of white civilization. Mm -hmm. And it's those kind of, um, it's the eugenics, the eugenic visions of whiteness in the 19th century we haven't been able to see Mm -hmm. uh, because we haven't been looking for a framework of race as malleable, adaptable, and plastic, mm-hmm. but that's actually how whiteness was elaborated, mm-hmm. um, as capacity itself, um, whereas blackness in particular was elaborated as dead material, mm-hmm. lacking any potential for, for growth or change.
1: I mean, it's super helpful for me because we often talk about the biologicalization of race. -hmm. In terms of the ossification of sort of racial categories, Mm -hmm. right? But you're suggesting that that actually there's a different, there's a kind of differential where that those forms of ossification actually only apply to non-white people, to Mm -hmm. non-white groups. Not there's a kind of plasticity, right? That actually doesn't apply for all of the races, Mm -hmm. right?
0: And reform in that period looked like extending that plasticity of whiteness to the children of non-white groups. Mm -hmm. This is the logic behind the, the um, orphan trains, mm-hmm. it's the logic behind the off-reservation boarding school movement, mm-hmm. it's the logic behind some of the um, freedmen schools in the mm-hmm. south, the idea uh, being that it was, anti-racist would argue, oh, there's a little bit of impressibility mm-hmm. <laughs> before the age of 12, mm-hmm. say, in black and native youth, and mm-hmm. if we can just remove them from their evil parents and environments, mm-hmm. then we can save them, and this is what charity and progress and reform looks like in sentimentalism. It's something that I call in the book bio-philanthropy, the idea that you could impress a new set of inherited or heritable characteristics on the bodies of the poor. Um, But when you understand that they're not just speaking about it in in a vague sense of perfection, they actually are literally meaning it as this will evolve the heritable material of this race and improve it. Then suddenly you can see that eugenics didn't start in 1906 Mm -hmm. with Indiana's first passage of a sterilization law. Eugenics is actually built in to sentimental liberal liberal reform. Mm -hmm. Um, And that I think is a really um, important idea for us to sit with as 19th century scholars and think about how much of our of how many of our heroes whether it's you know Dr. Mary Walker writing about vaginas while wearing a three-piece tux <laughs> and bragging about how often she got arrested for wearing men's clothes how many of these heroes are actually developing biopolitics and developing the agenda of eugenic physical betterment as politics do you maybe
1: also then want to zoom to the present and just briefly tell us a little bit about what you think some of the stakes of sentimental biopower might be today um you know there's that that long-standing question about the relationship between biopolitics and necropolitics can we understand necropolitics as being something that exists under biopolitics i've been thinking about necropolitics a lot lately in the age of trump um so i'm wondering what you think about Does biopolitics survive the Trump age? Do you see new adaptations of this model happening today? Do you see an exhaustion of sentimental Mm -hmm. biopower? How would you sort of think about the moment we're in right now?
0: That's a good question and a little bit harder to answer than I I would expect in some ways. I think because how biopower dresses itself up looks a little bit different mm-hmm. now than it did before. Mm-hmm. But for the first part, the kind of Foucauldian ta- read of biopolitics that I ascribe to and that I develop really sees that a practice of death mm-hmm. as central to biopower. So I tend to see necropolitics as central to the functioning of biopolitics. Mm-hmm. When, I hear, when I say biopolitics, I don't just mean the cultivation of life among the chosen. I mean that pro- that process of differentiating between which lives are disposable and which lives should be not only protected but optimized. Mm-hmm. I think that in many ways Trump is a perfect culmination of a long biopolitical trajectory. You know, mm-hmm. certainly that that framework he has that some of us are some of us are chosen, mm-hmm. the rest of you are not. You know, At its core, actually, Trump is kind of a um, biopolitical Twitter poet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like he so condenses it mm-hmm. into precisely that process mm-hmm. of I have the power and I get to help implement um, strategies to eliminate those that are just waste of resources and that are threats to our wealth accumulation. Mm-hmm. And I have the power to accelerate the wealth accumulation of the fellow 1%. It seemingly is a lot different from other presidents, you know, especially Obama, mm-hmm. um, though I also think that in many ways, this book was written under Obama presidency, mm-hmm. and I kind of think that in some ways it almost had to be, <laughs> right because if, if we've had a sentimental biopolitical president, it's Obama. It's somebody who is simultaneously you know deporting more u s residents than any other president, including including Trump at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, while escalating drone warfare all under the umbrella of this is um, you know the a land of freedom with opportunity for all and let's diversify who gets to count under the civilized you know and so two of the chapters we didn't talk about you know one is about Frances Harper for example how she uses the same framework of impressibility to argue for the potential of black women to be civilized Um, and also, to enjoy that civilization, like she argues it argues for it almost as a kind of um, erotic process in a way that does really important work of counteracting a, a massive discourse of, of sexuality as something that that consigns black women to the animal sphere and therefore the disposable sphere. Mm-hmm. She really completely repurposes the entire uh, role of sensation and pleasure for African Americans, um, but does so within this larger biopolitical logic of arguing for civilization as the basis of value. And I think what we're seeing is like a toggle between a sentimental biopower and the kind of like biopower that's red and tooth and claw. And that's just really upfront about this is a process of relative death whereas sentimental biopolitics people like to talk about as a process of relative life Mm -hmm. even though there's death involved (laughs) and now we're in one of those opposite moments
1: i mean that I don't know if we'll get to talk about it today, but that raises important questions about the relationship between sentimental biopower and and neoliberalism, right? Or a certain kind of neoliberal rhetoric, rhetoric, right? And what does it mean then to have a president who is, yeah, like as you said, literally in tweets, assigning relative value to people, right? And and just embracing a kind of logic and rhetoric of disposability, right?
0: That's been really widely embraced, you know? And as like many people, especially, you know, black activists and Latino activists and indigenous activists have said... Why is everyone so surprised that there is such organized racism still in the U.S.? Um, And that Trump has so many fans. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that, like a lot of great work in the 19th century, um, many of us have engaged in this project of showing how much white supremacy is built into the fabric of the nation. Absolutely. Even in places we've tended to say, well, this is some of the best versions of it. (laughs) Absolutely. That actually might
1: um, be like a good opening for me to read, maybe to close. I wanted to read just like something from the very end of your book, um, because you did raise, you know, this kind of question of activism and, um, you know, this question of how does one, how does one or how do many resist um, biopower itself? And I just think that this is um, just from uh, page 212 in the epilogue of your book, um, and I think it's a really... Um, kind of beautiful sort of summary of some of the the things that you grapple with in this book but also moves us to a different place that's a really really I think kind of inspiring and amazing ending. You say, the interplay of biology and culture can enable an understanding of race, sex, and gender as accumulations of the experiences of slavery, empire, capitalism, colonization, techniques of labor, sexuality, and domesticity. Accounts that would better enable us to grapple with their corrosive work on the mind and body. Furthermore, if race is inherited trauma, it is also affective belonging. What if one of the reasons there is so little scholarship on affect and racialization is because we have such scanty language to account for the ways violence registers in the body, the ways resilience, hope and love take material form. To account for how many activist, intellectual and artistic groups race sex and sexuality serve also as generative resources as life-giving structures of attachment enabling constraints born from the ashes of trauma And I love in these two questions, um, how you talk about a kind of critical lacuna or you really give us a way in which scholarship might move forward to think about the relationships of affect and racialization, not in some kind of really abstract way, but to think about how they sort of take material form, right? Mm -hmm. But then I love how you also then finally point us to the ways art, protest, activism, actually, I would maybe add their collectivity, right? can actually be sustaining, that those Mm -hmm. forms can actually be Mm life-giving. And then in that way, they are really crucial sites of resistance to biopower. And Mm -hmm. I really like how you open up that space for thinking about resistance Mm -hmm. there through art, protest, Mm coalition-building, activism is really inspirational Mm -hmm. and and wonderful. Um, So thanks so much for this conversation. It was a pleasure to talk with you.
0: Thank you for listening to the C-19 Podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag c19podcast or get in touch with us at c19podcast at gmail.com. Have an idea for an episode? Check out our CFP on the C19 website for more details on submitting a proposal.